Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy and sitting across from me as usual is Liam. Liam, how's it going, mate? Well, I recently drank a Red Bull, so I don't know what's going to happen. That was a really fast response. <laughs> well. And we got go. amped up Liam. This <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. So I promise I have not done a couple of bumps. <laughs> I mean, you know, we are in the production business. Who knows? <laughs> it's allowed. <laughs> and of course, our bearded dragon mascot, who's uh, eyeing me suspiciously as usual, is Floki, sitting over in the corner there. Uh, <clears throat> right before recording this podcast, I have eaten a gigantic bean burrito. Was it good? It was. Good. And I've washed it down with a rum and coke and a beer. All of these things may have been a mistake. <laughs> uh, pre-apologies for any unintentional noises that <laughs> come from this point onwards. Mexican food, man. I've got a real thing about Mexican food. I fucking love Mexican it. Mexican food is gorgeous. I mean, I, you can't really find any decent Mexican food around here that I've no. seen. But, but I think you've told me before that there's actually some you know, places worth sauntering up to in London, like central in, London. In Camden Town, which I haven't been up to in a couple of years now, actually, but in the Camden Market, there is always these little um, yeah, Mexican food stalls run by actual Mexicans. Yeah. And pretty much the only place to get decent Mexican food in the UK, yeah. I love Camden Town. I've been there like a million times, and every single time I go there, there's always been something new to explore. Something yeah. that was always sitting there whenever I've been up there, but there's always some new kind of eatery or like, you know, bizarre, you know, bizarre in a good sense, um, outlook of some kind. I was, I was like, oh, that's been there for 25 years. Why haven't I ever been in, you know, like yeah. so, you know, where we are, not so much. It's something I've always <laughs> been uh, very envious of Americans for. Yeah. Is the proliferation and sheer choice of Mexican food. Absolutely, yeah. In the UK, we've got Great Indian, which apparently you can't really get in the States, so that's good. But yeah, I, I've seen a taco truck in this country once, and it drove past me on London Bridge. We need to get more of that in here. And they also, as New Mexico is the only state I've been to in the US, they need to get some more restaurants that offer southwest, south, uh, east, uh, fucking hell. South Western US cuisine, yeah, yeah, <laughs> to yeah. The UK because that shit is really, really awesome. Yeah, we're catching up, guys. Slowly, but surely. <laughs> okay. Then, as usual, we got plenty of reviews <clears throat> to get through this week. Uh, Liam, take it away. Right. So, yeah, the first one, um, new release, The Old Gods, which is a Netflix original released on July the tenth. The, the uh, directed by Gina Prince Bythewood, I believe her name is, and it deals with a quartet of immortal mercenaries led by Andromache of Sophia, uh, played by Charlize Theron, who naturally prefers to be called Andy. Her three other cohorts are Booker, as played by Mathieu Chenot, who Belgian actor who I'm a big fan of. He uh, is a Frenchman who fought in the Napoleonic Wars. You've got Joe... <laughs> Joe the curse of the Belgian. Yeah, the curse of the Belgian. Yeah. Always forced to play a Frenchman. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you got a Joe, played by Marwan Kanzari, and Nikki, uh, Luca Marinelli, who are two lovers. They're respectively Moroccan and Italian. They met during the Crusades. They killed each other during the Crusades, but subsequently they became lovers and they all ganged up together as mercenaries. And for sort of centuries, if not millennia now, they've been fighting in major wars. They've been taking on um, hit jobs. They've been taking on rescue missions. And, but always with their immortality as a as an insular secret. As far as anyone else, anyone else is concerned, they're just a you know they're just soldiers of fortune, and nobody actually realizes that they have this eternal lifespan. Well, it's in the present day, and they get hired by a CIA operative named Copley, played by a Chiwetel Ejiofor, who uh, sends them to South Sudan to rescue a group of children who have been sold to traffickers. But they get there. 
and they essentially realise that this assignment has been a setup in order to blow their cover. Copley knows that they're immortal, and he sent them there um, for purposes of exposure. So now they've been rumbled, and this is all part of a clandestine, sinister experiment that Copley's involved in that we'll get into. Meanwhile, young lady named Niall, played by Kiki Lane, she's a US Marine, and she's in Afghanistan, and she dies in combat only to inexplicably reanimate, which really freaks her out. And the central immortals, they know that she is blessed with the same gift as them. And so Andy, Andromache, Charlize Theron goes to Afghanistan, forcibly takes um, Niall with and says, you're with us now. You know our secret. You know about us. We know about you. Um, you've got no choice. You're going to have to join up with us. Then it goes to uh, Stephen Merrick, as played by... Um, What's his name? Uh, Harry, I think it's Harry Fleming. The guy, Harry Melling, the guy who was in uh, Harry Potter and all that very bizarre British individual. And he is the dastardly head of a, of a pharmaceutical company. And he is very interested in um, conducting experiments on longevity and fighting pathology. He wants the mercenaries brought in front of them so that he can take um, a sample of their DNA and use it to sequence treatments that could be beneficial to humankind. He puts on a philanthropic front, but he's he is just a greedy bastard. He's mercantile. He's, he's doing it for because of his lucrative potential. And so you've got Niall, young soldier lass, who has now been forcibly recruited into the central band of everlasting warriors, and they are basically due for a face down with uh, the dastardly CEO. I love his comp. Combination of a face-off and a showdown. Yes. It's a face-down. It's a face-down, yeah. It's a really, really intense face-off showdown combo. Oh, Everything. a face-down. Yeah, face-down. Face-down off. I love it when you make up to an That's great. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's, so it's all set for this face-down. It's all going to kick off, and so, bang, that's the setup. And you know what? I've really, really enjoyed it. So this is on Netflix. This is on Netflix. Yeah, it was I have seen a lot of it. It seems to be um, trending quite high. Absolutely. There, um, I've read um, a couple of five-star reviews which seem to be trying to tout this film as a really groundbreaking, ingenious uh, narrative. It's not, but it's a very solid B-picture in the same way that Highlander is a solid B-picture. It doesn't come at the uh, concept of in- immortality from any anything that could be construed as an intellectual angle. But as a central conceit, it jettisons it very nicely. And I just, I thought it was really entertaining. I think all the performances are very good, particularly Charlie's Thrawn. It, it like, zips along at a lovely little pace. The fight choreography is really great. There's plenty of moments of poignancy in it as well, you know, um, it because there's sort of brief flashback narratives to the central cast uh, in centuries past, fighting in, as you know, fighting in Roman times and uh, various other epochs. And that, in conjunction with how, you know, just visibly burnt out and just jaded they are, there is like, it, it does have like a, an emotive undercurrent to it, but for the most part, it does not take itself too seriously, but it is, it is an incredibly solid actioner. And I just think, yeah, in terms of a uh, mind candy, I think few people can, few people can definitely, they couldn't go wrong with it, but they need to be aware of what they're walking into. Because as I said, there are some reviews that are selling this 
as some, you know, some almost Nolan-esque sci-fi treatment of uh, immortality, like, you know, a really uniquely high concept film. And it's not that, but that's not a detraction. You know, it, I, you know, thankfully, I think the marketing has sold what this film is. And the film does what it says on the tin. It is another one seal jobby. And it's a very satisfying one. I like the idea of um, playing up the idea that if you were immortal, you'd be incredibly jaded and burnt out. And yeah. I noticed the tagline is, uh, forever is harder than it looks. Absolutely, yeah. I like that concept. For yeah, and uh, Charlie's front as um, Andy Andromache. She is the kind of uh, badass femme warrior. A lot of people have uh, drawn some uh, quite understandable comparisons to her role in Fury Road. It's just a really neat little badass um, fantasy action flick. And, um, it's, yeah, it's, and it's good. And all the villains are very well-rounded. I think uh, Harry Milling is a great little wink. He provides a great little wink to the Hollywood inclination to just cast well-spoken Brits as complete and utter wankers. Sure, yeah. And he carries that off really nicely. You're, you're, let's face it, we are. We are. We're total tossers. <laughs> he is a total tosser. And you spend the entire film hoping that when he finally meets his demise, it's, in, it's preferably in the most gruesome and excruciating manner possible. possible. So it, it hits all the buttons. It really does. And yeah, it's just very, very, it's, it's very, very solid in its time. As I said, mind candy. I think uh, Charlie's Theron has <clears> been killing it for quite some time now as well. I've always really liked it. You can really sort of lean your film against her. Absolutely, yeah. As much as I loved all the um, the pyrotechnics and everything of Mad Max Fury Roads, Fury Road rather, um, her portrayal of Furiosa really tied the film together. Yeah. You needed that strong performance. I mean, Tom Hardy is obviously great in it, but as we discussed before on the podcast, what's nice is that Mad Max is sort of a side character. He's very one note uh, and deliberately so. Whereas Furiosa is where the depth and the uh, the performance and the the inner heart of the film is coming from. Absolutely, I've I've, I've loved um, Charlize Theron for years, and obviously she had some effective bit parts in you know films like The Devil's Advocate, which I like, films like the remake of The Italian Job, which I don't, and nobody should. <laughs> but you know, in in uh, performances such as Will the Old God and Fury Road, and even films like Monster, where she's Eileen Wernos and North Country, which is the famous account of a real life uh, sexual harassment litigation that happened in, I believe it was Pennsylvania. Her acting is really, it's very robust. It's, it's very authentic. And even in this, which is a bit of fluff, but a great bit of fluff, her performance is very solid. You know, she she sells the, you know, she's, you know, she's got kernels of decency in her um, at foundation, but this is definitely a woman that you don't want to fuck with. And it's very easy to discern why her underlings have a lot of respect for her and why they are very trepidatious about ever getting on the wrong side of her and why they are so eager to follow her and potentially die for her. Because this is another thing, the immortality in the old gods, it's a strange kind of immortality because you do live for a very long time and you do regenerate, but it's a variety of immortality where if you take enough hits to the wrong place enough times, you can expire. So does everyone have quite literally an Achilles heel? Um, not a, there's not a specified Achilles heel to each and every character, but it's widely essentially you can be battered enough that your capability for immortality uh, begins to wear down. Right. Okay. So it's, so essentially, and I'd mention this in my write up. It doesn't preclude death. It just decreases the likelihood by some margin. So you can die, but you know, in the same as. 
but that's just uh, you know that's uh, how would you call it? That, that's that's a, a, a weak spot. It's a pressure point. Much like in Highlander, the only way you can be killed is by being decapitated. So you can be killed, but it's you know it's but it's with enough. It's with enough egregious battering. So um, yeah, which uh, I mean, they I think they could have fleshed that out a little bit more substantively. But it's not in a way that I thought made the film suffer. So this is the rarest of things for you, and this is a comic book adaptation that you really enjoyed. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was great. I think, you know, I can't actually think... I mean, I mentioned in my written review that the immortality could have been treated to a more substantive examination. But I mainly included that off the back of reacting to these glowing reviews that, as I mentioned before, seem to be trying to uh, sell the film as this incredibly intelligent thought provoker because it isn't one but in the final analysis the way that it uses the device of immortality is it is good it is satisfying it makes for so in the subtitle i refer to it as john wick meets highlander mm-hmm. that and that that should give you a very rounded idea of what to expect there's lots of bashing up shooting up stabbing up but these are extended action sequences that I um, I really liked the flow of because we talked on, I believe we talked on the premium editions of the podcast before about how extended ac- action sequences can essentially ruin a film. I deliberately cited John Wick 2. You did, yeah. One, John yeah. Wick, and, 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 Which everybody seemed to like. Yeah, and I think number three is even worse for that. I've been told, yeah. I yeah. haven't um, mustered the strength yet to like get through John yeah. Wick 3. But, this is, um, but the, the action sequences in the old God, yeah, as I said, I really liked the choreography for them. They're very satisfyingly brutal. Um, the cutting and thrusting, you know, bone crunch, shoot them up, bash them up in the film, I think is very well done. It's bloody and makes you wince. So it's 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 just, it, as I say, it's just a solid bit of solid bit of bubblegum. And um, yeah, I just think hopefully, if anyone can suspend any lofty expectations, they should go into it having a really good time. Excellent. All right, let's get on to our second one then. And I <laughs> believe this is so you got two brand new ones. This two week. brand new ones. Yeah, uh, relic. Yeah, Relic. This one uh, is drastically less well-known than Old God and pretty much any of the big releases that have been out this year. Relic is a, an Australian psychological horror. It's the debut of Natalia Eric James, and it introduces us to Kay, as played by Emily Mortimer, British actress, who's going with her daughter Sam, um, played by Bella Heathcote, to Kay's mother's house. And Kay's mother is Edna, who is uh, played by a very well-respected Australian actress, Robin Nevin, who I believe is pushing 80 now. And Edna has been been having a, an extraordinary amount of problems recently. She's been going missing from the house. You know, she's getting on in years. Uh, people have been ringing her daughter, who lives uh, on the other side of Australia, um, sort of complaining about her mother's behaviour. And they're worried that Edna may be starting to slip into the grips of dementia. So her daughter and granddaughter, they show up to inquire and see if they can do anything for her and try to look after her. When they get there, she isn't even there. And as soon as they enter the house, they feel that something is off. Things look different. And uh, both women, the, the both younger women, the respective mother and daughter, they keep having bizarre apparitions, bizarre dreams, weird black markings keep appearing on the walls of the house. And there's a shady... A uh, very ominous cabin out back. It just keeps giving these uh, women the spooks. A couple of days later, um, the grandmother Edna she, she just returns inexplicably out of nowhere. She's in the kitchen, just cutting up vegetables. 
and her feet are all dirty as if she's been wandering the local wilderness. And everything is seemingly back to normal. But then things start to slowly get very, very wrong. Her personality starts to change um, for the absolute worst. It's not just merely forgetting things, forgetting people, forgetting when she's put things down, all of the classic traits of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. But she starts to act very maliciously. And what I liked about The Relic is that it does deal with dementia, but it deals with dementia in, I would say, an allegorical fashion. Because the thing, The Relic, there's a lot of The Relic atmospherically at least it reminded me of hereditary by Ariaster mm. because dementia is manifested as a demon and so this house literally haunted by a demonic presence is you know a sort of personification of dementia and it was quite an experience this film I mean it certainly stayed with me because number one I thought it was I did think it was genuinely very spooky it doesn't have an abundance of jump scares but there is a very palpable strain of dread running through it. And I think that 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 comes across in the cinematography as well. It's very well shot and it really communicates that something is very, um, very threateningly wrong here. Great soundtrack as well. And, um, but yeah, just the way that it, it plays with the, I mean, I've never um, come across any works that plays with them, you know, uh, that kind of disease in a supernatural fashion before. Yeah, it's a nice idea. It is a nice idea. And I was kind of worried. I was initially worried that it might have been done in a way that was um, insensitive, but it wasn't. It was actually, it's it's actually a very emotive film. It's ultimately, it's ultimately a very sad film, you know, in terms of its subject matter. And you're definitely not going to feel very good should you sit down and watch it. But I just think in terms of an original idea, just a fresh take on the horror genre with really with really great performances. I, I really, I've utterly believed the performance of all three generations of women in this film. And yes, it, it is very plaintive. It does have um, an oppressive atmosphere. There's, yeah, it's, it's I'm just going to say it's a soul-crushing experience. <laughs> but, but still it, a recommendation. It is no soul crushing in a good way. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Um, it is soul crushing. I would say in a good way, which sounds very counterintuitive and paradoxical, but because I think it really effectively communicates what I mean. Obviously, I say you know what people didn't know already. Everyone knows, or hopefully should know, that dementia is an extremely horrifying and depressing thing. To I mean, especially see somebody you love have to go through, but it's also going to be terrifying for a person who's suffering from it. The way that uh, the film um, tackles the disease through the conduit of horror, it really compounds just how, just how devastating dementia is because it, you know, you could have told this tale through just yet another, you know, maybe hackneyed, you know, Richard Courtesy kind of dramedy where everything you expect to happen, every, every single trope in the book gets nice and neatly ticked off and it takes like, you know, five and a half million quid on its opening weekend because people just like that sort of thing, don't they? But uh, no, the, I, I was um, I was very impressed by The Relic. I'm ambivalent as to whether I'd watch it again, not because I didn't think it was any good, but because it's um, very, very emotionally draining. But it's emotionally draining in a way that is necessary. And I, yeah, it's a very, it's a very challenging watch. 
I've come across reviews that have said that they don't think that it uses its central conceit to its full potential and that it was boring. But I I just simply don't agree. I like what you would call art house horror. It's like, you know, I'm a big fan of, as I said before, Ari Aster, Love Midsummer, Love Hereditary. I like I really I really like psychological horror and I like it when they have kind of elliptical um, arty sensibilities, but it's got to be pulled off correctly because you can very easily go down the route of pretentiousness. But that's not what Relic does. And, um, yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's, this is really weird one to talk about because it is genuinely more obsessing than it is terrifying. Mm. But Obsessing, in a way, I think is harder <clears throat> than terrifying. Yes, yes, absolutely. I mean, heredi- you know, hereditary, I know, you know, this is... I keep needing to get around to that film when I still haven't seen it. I think it's superb. Again... Ari Aster is a director who is extremely polarising. And I, I have a hunch that Natalia Eric James is going to be another <clears throat> director who polarises a lot of critics and audiences. Because I find what she's done here very interesting and I really like the way that she's executed it. But other people have said, oh, they find it too slow burn or, you know, it never goes anywhere. But they said the same thing about Ari Aster films. But, you know, it's, they're always going somewhere. You're just not spoon-fed a boogeyman demon or, you know, presented with a grimoire that spells everything out you need to know because those yeah. films are shit. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah, I think Relic, yeah, Relic, yeah, very tough to watch, but it does, it is a thought provoker and it's a smart film and ultimately it's a very, very poignant film. And um, I would actually, I would thoroughly encourage people to give this one a chance. I really was. Just reading here, one of the uh, one of the first credited producer is uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah, he was very much into the production game. Yeah, he was very much behind this. Yeah, he, he loved the the script of this, and he yeah he, he poured his um, finances into getting the film made, and I think he's contributed to uh, I I would call it a very valuable project. And uh, Robin Nevin, who is the uh, plays the grandmother, is the uh, former head of the Sydney Theatre Company. Yeah, as I said, she's very well respected uh, Australian thespian. Yeah, that's and, quite um, impressive. And uh, yeah, and her performance in the film as Edna, because you know she's this meek and diminutive elderly woman who initially and naturally you feel extremely, you feel extraordinarily sorry for her because she's clearly confused and she's very alone. Kay's father died a long time ago. She's been living in this house, which is essentially in the middle of the woods, just uh, for years, just by herself with infrequent visits from uh, surviving family members. And, you know, it's, it is heartbreaking. But then there are other moments where it's clear something is extraordinarily wrong with her. And as I mentioned, the dementia gets given an allegor- allegorical treatment here. So there is a, a supernatural catalyst. There are other moments where you are just completely and utterly scared of her and you know, and you know in a way that sort of made me kind of lean back from the screen a few times because it, it is it's um it's very baleful it's very um it's it's menacing um but in a in a way that's actually very uh humane and realistically scary as opposed to uh poultry or anything like that and um yeah i, I would say um I, I i fuck the negative reviews off i think this one is very much worth a watch uh, and I really I like what Natalia Eric James has done here, and I really look forward to seeing what else she's got to offer in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, then. Well, that brings me on to TV of the week, and it's a double parter this week, mm. and you're going to see why in a minute. First off, we're, we're doing uh, something old and something new. Cool. 
and uh, not something borrowed or indeed something blue. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I did a rewatch recently on a, a, to my mind, a landmark piece of work. Uh, this came out in 2001 and is quite well known, although I'm sort of, I'm reviewing it for a couple of reasons, primarily mm-hmm. because I think it's worth a rewatch for anyone that's seen it before. But being a 2001 piece of work, and I know we've got some younger audience members, there, you know, there's 19-year-olds watching this that weren't even born mm. when, this, when this first came out. So this is uh, Band of Brothers. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah so this is a uh, mini-series that's developed for HBO. Uh, first came out on September the 9th, 2001. And it's an American war drama miniseries. Basically, we are in World War II. Uh, we're based off of uh, Stephen E. Ambrose's 1992 non-fiction book of the same name, which I haven't read, but as I understand it, is very good. And this is charting the uh, history of Easy Company, the uh, 2nd Battalion, 506th Parachute Infantry Regiment, or more famously known as the 101st Airborne Division. And we first find them uh, being trained up before they become part of the D-Day landings. Uh, They didn't land with these ships famously in Normandy. While the events of D-Day were going on, they were dropped into French territory uh, in somewhat chaotic fashion. Mm. Uh, For a start, huge number of famous names in this we've got i mean in the league we have damien lewis playing uh major richard dick winters obviously everybody involved in this it's all based on real life characters and real life dialogue etc etc so you've got damien lewis in the lead you've got ron livingston as captain lewis nixon uh most people i think would probably know ron livingston from office space Although he crops up in a surprising number of things. Like most people seem to refer to him as, oh, it's that guy from Office Space. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But he's a very talented guy. Yeah, and I mean, just going through the cast, I see Scott Grimes, who of course has become very famous since for his voice acting work, and he's also in The Orville, that I mentioned last week. Uh, Donnie Wahlberg, the better of the Wahlberg brothers, to my mind at least. And <laughs> I know you disagree with me on that one, but here we go anyway. Uh, you've got <laughs> Dexter Fletcher, Colin Hanks. I mean, this is basically a series that is made up of, oh, it's that guy. And it's charting the 101st Airborne Division's march through uh, enemy territory uh, and eventually making their way all the way to Germany and to the Eagle's Nest. So they were, um, well, there's some contention over this, but by most accounts, they were the first people to reach Hitler's private hideout in the hills of Austria. Uh, I wanted to rewatch this basically to see how it had aged, because I remember watching it a couple of times a few years ago. And I, I think I watched some of it when it first came out as well. And a lot of time has passed since. And I remember it being beautifully well shot, beautifully well judged, and just wanted to give it another go and see how it holds up. Watched the first episode, and within the first 15 minutes, there was a look of horror upon my face. Because the first episode, there's a hell of a lot of schmaltz. You know that Steven Spielberg schmaltz, who is actually the primary <clears throat> executive producer on this show, along with Tom Hanks. Uh, they were coming right off the back of Saving Private Ryan. Steven Spielberg was there basically to put a Saving Private Ryan sheen on things, to be the director's eye. They were sort of using him as uh, in that capacity. In the first episode, there is a particular moment where uh, Damien Lewis, as Major Dick Winters, is chatting to Nixon. And you've got the Spielberg sentimental over the top soundtrack over the top. It's in a moment somebody is about to give, you know, some kind of rousing monologue, and then you just hear the score go quite literally. Yeah, yeah. And I was watching it going, oh no. Like, you know, when you come back to something, you go, oh no, I've I've remembered it wrong. Yeah. Like it's much better. I was thinking, oh God. So you've got all this Spielberg schmaltz going over the top of it. A lot of big delays in between dialogues or like a long, meaningful look that seems to take up about 30 seconds. 
I was thinking, oh God. He loves his looks. Yeah, I was, I was thinking, especially Warhorse. Oh the, God, um, yeah. When the horse did most of the looks. <laughs> so I still can't forgive him for Warhorse. I'm sorry, Spielberg. You made a lot of fantastic films. But uh, I, was, I was watching this and thinking, ah, I might have misjudged this. Perhaps this has aged badly. And that's what I really didn't want to see out of this. Thankfully, I mean, how many shows have I talked about on this podcast where I go, the first episode's a little bit ropey, but stick with it? Yeah. Thankfully, Band of Brothers, almost immediately after the first episode, picks up its heels and takes off into the show that you remember it being. The reason to watch Band of Brothers is simple. It is landmark television. Oh, absolutely. We're talking an era where, I mean, The Sopranos was new. uh, Deadwood was yet to be born. All these landmark shows that basically convinced the viewing public that TV was something to be taken seriously and that it could compete at the same level of not just in terms of cinematography, but in terms of gravitas and weight and um, basically taking it seriously on a TV budget. Now, uh, Band of Brothers had a huge budget, as you would imagine, uh, 125 million for the series. Uh, bearing in mind it's a mini series as well. That's a hell of a lot of money. That works out to about $12.5 million per episode. And a cast list as long as your arm with so many faces in it that uh, at the time in 2001, a lot of them were up and comers and are now part of the Hollywood glitterati yeah. and have uh, made their careers, oh, essentially a lot of it off of the back of being seen in Band of Brothers. The reason to watch it is not just that though. It's so beautifully well done. I mean, when we talk about historical accuracy, obviously there's always going to be some fudging of the lines especially when you're dealing with something like you've got an entire unit, basically, who all have their real-life stories to tell. And each episode of Band of Brothers is framed by, uh, in the opening uh, sequence, before you get to the titles, you've got the real-life soldiers, uh, the survivors at least, being interviewed, which adds a hell of a lot of weight and gravitas to proceedings, in that you're looking into the eyes of these men who you're about to see a fictionalised account of what really happens to them. The nice thing about Band of Brothers is that it tries much, much, much harder than just about any other show I can think of to be historically accurate. And again, before anybody jumps down my throat, I know they fudge things, but they, they put elements of detail into it that you just wouldn't expect. Like um, the patches on their uniforms have the right number of stitches as the original uniforms. They count rounds. They show um, little tips and tricks that the airborne soldiers really did use in their combat gear and the way they hold their rifles and the way they suit up for parachute landings and that sort of stuff. They put so much effort into being his, as historically accurate as they can. They also did a wonderful thing, which I think far more production should do if you're going to do a production about real life people, is that they made the actors uh, basically get to know their counterparts, their real life counterparts. Uh, some through phone interviews, most of them actually went and spent a hell of a lot of time with the people they were going to portray. They also did extremely sensitive casting. I and mean, when you look at um, photos of these actors, and you look at photos of the real-life people they're playing, the physical resemblance is uncanny. They put so much effort into making it as accurate as they could. And look, no TV piece of work is ever going to be 100% accurate. I'd be surprised if Band of Brothers was even 50% accurate. But it's the level of care given, and the level of, well, look, these people are still here, and we need to tell their story as best they can. What you end up with with this series is something closer to the reality of World War II than just about any other series has managed to get to. It's gory, it's bloody, limbs will blow off, um, people will be shot, people will be injured in very, very, very realistic depictions. I mean, there's some very uncomfortable scenes within this for those people that are quite sensitive towards violence. 
but it is a magnificent piece of work. I particularly wanted to point out the um, episode six, which is called Baston. And this is the famous uh, Battle of the Bulge, where the 101st Airborne and I believe several other military units were stuck in a field in Belgium in amongst the woods, uh, waiting for the German advance. They weren't given enough um, winter gear before they went out. They were absolutely freezing cold and they were stuck being constantly bombed by artillery and eventually overwhelmed by uh, German tank brigades coming into their position. It's a scary piece of work. Bastogne almost works as a, uh, a film within its own right. It's so obviously painful in the sense that you could see the realism. This idea that you're just hanging out in the woods, you're there with your mates, you're boiling snow to try and get some fresh water. Nobody's got enough winter gear. People are getting horrible diseases and trench foot and all this sort of shit going on. And it does it beautifully through the uh, viewpoint of the medic Mm. who is charging around with incredibly little supplies, trying desperately to hold these men together during the worst winter of their lives. But while one of the um, real-life soldiers at the start of the episode says, uh, on a cold winter night, my wife will tell you, I always look out the window and I say to her, well, it might be cold out there, but it's nowhere near as cold as Bastogne. And I think this series does something really genuinely important. It shows a level of heroism and a level of grit that I think, uh, in modern society at least, we seem to be lacking these days. I mean, we of all people, we're sitting here complaining about the COVID crisis and everything going on. We know Trump's America and 2020 shit and 2020's awful. No, 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 no. 1939s and 1945. That was fucking awful. Well, a lot of people have spoken, and obviously, actually, a lot of people from sort of um, every single avenue of um, politics and philosophy have spoken about how the um, the war generation, mm. how they were um, distinct in terms of their their outlook on society and the way that they viewed um, the relationship with the fellow man. You know, there was no now. Now you could say there is a heady dose of pathological narcissism in the world, and there has been for a while. But back during the days of World War Two, and even you know the post-war generation after it, there was still something about communitarianism and the the idea, the the notion of sacrificing yourself for something bigger or even people you love, whether it be a, a comrade or whatever. Giving your life for the next generation. Absolutely. I mean, there's nothing more <clears throat> heroic than that. Yes, that was that was considered to, um, you know, it's not even by the body, it's, it's what you do. It's fundamental integrity. And now, you know, there's a lot more kind of um, pockets where people say, like, well, no, why should I have to do that? Mm. You know, we, you know, there was there's a real... Yeah, there is a real, real chasm between the. I would say the way that the, um, the, especially you know, Western, but also globally, but with obviously particular emphasis on Western as we're talking about Band of Brothers, but the way the UK and the US, the generations who lived through the Second World War and the people who served in the Second World War, there's there could not be um, a bigger contrast between how they think and feel about life, about uh, their families, about their colleagues and subsequent generations. I mean, you could make a good argument as well for uh, simple naivety. When yeah, it comes yeah. To, uh, American soldiers si- signing <laughs> up to go and be part of the war and go and beat Hitler and be you know, American, hurrah, let's go ahead. The show actually deals with that nicely as well, especially in terms of replacements. So when they first go over for their first big push, they lose a lot of men. And of course, you need fresh trained men to come in and replace those positions. And the level of difference between the people that have actually fought 
and the sort of uh, level of offence they have towards these young guys coming in going, God, I can't wait to get out there and shoot some of those Jerry's. And they're going, believe me, we've been, you don't want to fucking go. Yeah. This is the first hot meal I've had in fucking two months, man. People have been shooting, like every single day people have been shooting at me. I've lost friends. And you're going to come at me and say, I can't wait to go back over, you prick. Yeah, 100%. The show does such an amazing job of doing that. It's got heart. It's got some wonderful performances. It's got amazing cinematography. And basically, if you've seen Saving Private Ryan, and let's face it, who fucking hasn't at this point? It's Saving Private Ryan, the show. The cinematography is very much the same. Yes, it's got a little bit of the schmaltzy soundtrack to it. Yes, it's got some um, very obvious historical fudges and that sort of thing. But they were trying so hard to be respectful to the memory of these people who did such an incredible thing. And that all holds up wonderfully. Like I said, Bastogne in particular stands out as, it's such a tense episode to watch because artillery could strike at any minute. One minute you're huddling around with your friends, shivering your balls off, talking about a girl back home that you miss. And the next minute the trees are exploding around you. And that guy you were just talking to, well, he's in pieces over there. And your best mate's lost his leg. And it, it just shows all of that to a degree that I haven't seen in a uh, World War II production before or since. There's been a lot of schmaltz put over the whole uh, World War II uh, cinematic arena, so to speak. Although Band of Brothers suffers a little bit from it, it gets way, way closer to the truth than just about any other series I've seen. It reminds me of something I've deliberated over in the past. The men who served, when they, you know, I know that they're kind of revered as classics. When you have films like The Dam Busters and The Battle of Britain, Mm. You know, it's like, oh, you know, it, it mean, almost it was fun. Yeah, it was like, oh, this was, you know, they're all ch- this was a laugh. You know, mm. this is like, oh, you know, come on, old boy. You know, it's it's all very chipper and, you know, like. Never mind, old chap, we'll be back in Blighty soon. Yeah, it, and I'm just thinking, what was the men who served in that conflict, what was their genuine analysis I mean, of seeing what they participated in presented like that? As well, I think, when you're looking back at those films, a lot of those films were talking like um, 50s and 60s cinema. And uh, rating systems were a lot different back then. So, sorry, that bean burrito was coming back on me. (laughs) (laughs) So you couldn't show the kind of things that we can get away with showing today. Of course. So you'd have something like, um, you'd hear planes in the distance, a couple of people go running outside, there'd be a big explosion, and then someone would come back and go, Jimmy's gone. Yeah, because they couldn't show the level of gore that we can get away with today. But I think it's important. I think it's really, really important for every single human being alive today to understand why World War II was so fucking horrible. And remember, with this, you're on the side of the Americans. You're seeing it from the American perspective. The Americans came over as the um, as the big push. They were coming from a faraway land, from practically the other side of the planet. So they're coming in uh, well-fed, well-trained, for the most part, well-armed. And they had such an incredibly shit time of it. So you think about yeah, what happened to the French during World War II, what happened to Britain when we were we had to famously do our huge retreat back to Dunkirk because we were getting the absolute shit kicked out of us. This was such a terrifying, scary time to be alive. And I think every human being on the planet owes it to themselves to educate themselves. I mean, this is a TV show, so there is an entertainment <coughs> aspect. But Band of Brothers goes further. It's more about the education of the thing. The war is fucking terrible. Don't be a fucking warmonger because it leads to situations like this. It's difficult, I think, for us as the modern generation to wrap our heads around the fact that no matter how many museums you visit and how many TV shows you watch and how many books you read, to wrap your head around the idea that this was a time when quite literally 
with the exception of Switzerland, the entire fucking world was fighting each other. There was nowhere safe. You know, bombs and armies and tanks and gas and horror was around you at every single angle. And to get that concept across is so difficult, I think, through any kind of medium. Band of Brothers does it in such a nicely paced and, for the most part, historically accurate way that it's very difficult to Absolutely, yeah. And the thing is, I I like like war films, but I've always thought that if a war film, you know, Band of Brothers miniseries, if a war film is good... It, um, it should not be entertaining in the traditional sense of the word, but it should be edifying in a way that co- completely commands your attention. Mm. And, uh, you know, as I was going back, you know, the Battle of Britain was, I mean, the film was, I think that was 1969. Well, I know it was a completely different time span and different conflict. Twelve years before, in 1957, Ingmar Bergman came out with the Seventh Seal, which depicted the Crusades, and that conveyed the horror of war. Mm. Far more effectively than this, you know. The, as you say, you know, World War Two was utter, completely, utterly horrific, and it's just like, come on, lads. Yeah, it's just, and yeah, I've always wondered the veterans. Yeah, when they see that, I mean, does, I mean, does that make them feel good, or do they think like, are they taking the piss, or like? I mean, yeah, there's a certain quiet dignity to that generation as well, where I, I guess, I mean, just purely as a guess, and from interviews and things that I've seen that they sort of view it as, well, at least you're alive. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. You might be wrong, but at least you're alive. Yeah. And famously, Saving Private Ryan uh, invited a lot of veterans to its premiere, and they had counsellors on hand um, to counsel veterans afterwards because they uh, they knew they'd gotten closer in terms of violence, and particularly, obviously, the famous Normandy landing scenes. Yeah. That they, they'd uh, gone for accuracy. And if you'd actually been there, and seeing your your mates and your your squadron um, and all the people around you blown to shreds, mm. then seeing that done in graphic HD detail may bring back some uh, some PTSD that's very deep and very long buried within their. Some psyche. of those veterans have got to be they they would have had to be afflicted with that mm. just in terms of probability. So yeah, I mean I'm glad to hear that because I imagine that they were in um, they were of utmost necessity. Yeah. You know, the uh, councillors on hand. It's done with real respect. And uh, if you missed it the first time round, or maybe you saw it the first time round and you haven't seen it since, it really is worth going over again. Again, stick with it with the first episode's got way too much of the schmaltz dial turned up, which Spielberg is often guilty of. You can feel that warhorse bit of, yeah, that, that, that little bit of <sighs> over-sentimentality through it. But as a piece overall, it actually does a really good job of showing the darkness of the times. And hopefully that might make us feel a little bit more grateful for the fact that although times are hard at the moment, it could always be worse and they got through it so we can get through this. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, I haven't I haven't been able to leave the house other than go to work for several months, but I haven't had to, you know, a man who was... No like, one's been bombing you. No, a, ma- <laughs> a man who was like a brother to me, yourself, I haven't had to fucking scoop you up and put you in a bin bag because I've just seen you blown to shit by a grenade. Yeah. So, yeah. It should um, perspectify things yeah. for a great deal of people, I would hope so. And, of course, you can have great fun playing the, oh, it's that guy. Now. I mean, literally, there's, I mean, I'm mean, i just looking through the list. There. There's uh, Simon Pegg, he turns up in it. Yeah. Jimmy Fallon turns up in it for one <laughs> second. <laughs> no, no. Which no, is mad, isn't it? Yeah, that's utterly bizarre. I'm sure he blew someone behind the center. Tom Hardy, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Tom Hardy's in it for about two scenes. Yeah. Yeah. You can literally play spot that actor. And then look at their career after that point. So, yeah, absolute landmark piece of work. Please do give it a go. Uh, yeah, and that brings me on to my second piece of the week, 
And this is uh, trending on Netflix massively at the moment. This is uh, Unsolved Mysteries. Now, this is actually a reboot of, I mean, Unsolved Mysteries has been running for a long time in the US. It's one of those things that in the UK, you generally tend to catch late at night on one of the smaller channels. If you can't sleep and you're flicking through the TV. Um, it was originally hosted by uh, Robert Stack, who, if you're struggling to picture him, he often turned up in like a grey three-quarter length coat in like a, you know, poking his head out of a garage in some parking lot somewhere with a lot of um, smoke machine fog going past him. He was the airplane. He was in airplane when he was the airport commander. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, basically, in its original form, Unsolved Mysteries was quite a silly show. (laughs) It's one of those ones with the really overblown narration Mm. and the really bad um, reenactments with real terrible D-list, not even D-list, Z-list actors. His voice is great. Stack. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but. <laughs> but it was. But people watched and people liked it because unsolved mysteries are by default compelling. Mm. This idea that it's a very scary idea. We all like to think that if you were to disappear tomorrow, that the police would do absolutely everything they could. You've got D, like DNA evidence. You've got all these uh, huge resources and huge departments on hand to figure everything out and go. We are. How can anybody get away with anything? They've rebooted unsolved mysteries because essentially unsolved mysteries have never stopped. I believe we did a statistic on this show once in one of our trivia pieces uh, that something like 60% of all violent crime in the US goes unsolved. Yeah. Which is absolutely terrifying. Very really, terrifying, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is uh, it's a Netflix reboot. Uh, it's so been, that wasn't funny. I was laughing nervously. Yeah. Uh, it's being released in volumes. Um, so series. Then. Yeah. Uh, currently there are six episodes in the first volume up on Netflix. And they're as compelling as they ever was, except this time, as they ever were, rather, this time you've got the Netflix production values. So all the silliness has been stripped out. For a start, this is quite grim. All of the stories are grim, as you would expect anybody going missing, uh, presumably raped, murdered, kidnapped, committed suicide, is a very, very dark subject to talk about. Mm. It's done with a suitable amount of Netflix um, production values. And if you've seen any kind of, Netflix docu-series in the past couple of years, you'll know what I'm talking about. That gritty film grain kind of thing. Um, the reenactments are much, much, much better than the original, I'm very pleased to say. And they're just compelling stories. And uh, we've got, uh, so the first episode is Mystery on the Rooftop. And this is a guy, um, 32-year-old writer and videographer, Ray Rivera, who um, seemed to live a very, very happy and charmed life, absolutely loved by his family, uh, loved by his partner. A screenwriter trying very hard to make a career for himself in the world, wrote constantly all the time. One day he went missing. No one could figure out why. His girlfriend called the police. Police launched an investigation, couldn't find anything. Uh, There was a hotel nearby in Baltimore that noticed that um, they had multiple floors in this hotel and multiple roof ledges. And they noticed from the top roof ledge that there was a hole in one of the lower roof ledges. They went down and inspected this hole and got into a, like a locked-off back room where this hole went to and found his body. Now, he either jumped for suicidal reasons or was compelled up there or potentially pushed off the edge of the roof. And no one knows why. He had absolutely no signs whatsoever. His life was going well, by all accounts. Um, no signs whatsoever of conversion. One interesting thing about him, though, being a screenwriter, he was very, very interested in cults, um, small um, cult sects and groups, and particularly uh, Masonic kind of dealio. 
Right, yeah. The whole Masonic cult, secret handshakes, meeting in dark rooms. He was very, very interested in that and doing a lot of research for that for his screenplays. That's the only link anyone could find to potentially why someone might want to murder him. Because him committing suicide by jumping off one roof to another, in order to get to the point where he had to have jumped from, you had to get out of one of the top story windows that are always locked. You had to get out one of those and shuffle along the ledge all the way around to the other side of the building. That was the only way you could have possibly done it. And then jumped what was, it's like a hundred foot drop. Now, if you're going to commit suicide, you don't jump from a high roof to a slightly lower roof. You jump from the fucking top, right? Yeah. He, for some reason, jumped from, he did a hundred foot drop rather than a 500 foot drop. Uh, Scattered around the hole as well were his reading glasses and his mobile phone and his flip-flops. His phone still worked and his reading glasses weren't smashed. Now, from a 100-foot drop, that should just obliterate just about everything around you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you've got plenty of uh, private investigators. <clears throat> uh, obviously, got the talking heads kind of mechanic with Unsolved Mysteries coming forward and going, well, that doesn't make any sense. And uh, autopsy technicians and things like that agreeing with the fact that if you drop from that kind of height, everything should be smashed. I mean, you'll be smashed for a start, but even every object you're carrying with you, all of his personal effects, it was like they were scattered around the hole. And to this day, no one knows what happened to him. There's a nice moral angle to Unsolved Mysteries that I really, really like in that every single episode ends with a little bit of text on screen saying, please, if you have any information, if this has jogged any memories for you, here's, you can go to this website and, and submit stuff anonymously. Here's some phone numbers you can call. Please, 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 if you know anything at all, if you even spotted someone on that night, everything is helpful, everything is useful. And I like that. I like the fact that it's on Netflix as a platform because obviously that's a huge audience. So hopefully, in a power I was reading earlier, there have been several uh, credible tips released on these cases um, uh, since the release of the show. So perhaps it's doing some moral good out there as well, which would be nice to see. <clears throat> like I said, it's pretty grim watching. But the macabre is, is fascinating. And we're always drawn towards that. And I think, I don't think many people are going to be watching this and going, hooray, this is great entertainment. It's, it's grim and it's dark, but it's real. And it's dealing with uh, people's real lives and especially the, the victims, these people that have gone missing, these people that have, their bodies have later been found or sometimes no body at all. They're just looking for closure at this point. They're just looking for someone to to fill in those blanks, to fill in those last minutes, to understand what happened. There is something slightly unsatisfying about the fact that, of course, by its very nature, these are unsolved mysteries. <laughs> so you don't get the payoff at the end of, oh, it was uh, Carlos de blah, 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 and uh, he's a prolific serial killer in the, in the area at the time, and it was definitely, he later confessed, you know, you don't get that closure at the end. So in a sense, there's a, a certain lack of satisfaction there, but it does make you wonder. And I'm, it's a nice thing that perhaps this is out there uh, really doing some good. That perhaps I would encourage people to watch it, not just for the fact that it's very well done, not f- just for the fact that it's intriguing <laughs> and to a certain level entertaining, but perhaps spreading the word around might do some good for these families. I think that would be a, a good thing for the world. I think um, in terms of the show itself, it's, it's only going to be unsatisfying if you've been watching too much fucking Columbo. Yes. It should, but, I mean, from the of it, it should actually be... Um, a very sobering experience and, uh, well, among many things, teach you to, well, number one, when you care about people, don't take them for granted because they might fucking disappear the next day and you never find out why. Mm. You know, it's, you know, it uh, sounds like 
it has a stock, you know, it relays, as you said, a stock moral. Well, we were talking about Band of Brothers and sort of uh, the, the modern bubble. That could never happen again. No. And of course, we all walk, walk around with this attitude that, well, I'm not going to go missing. And if I do, then the police will be on it and they'll find out what happened to me and that will wrap everything up. And the reality is unfortunately not so. But yeah, it, it's very, very compelling television. Uh, I don't know why they've decided to release it in these six-part volumes. It seems like they've got more content than that, or whether they're just um, gradually staging their content because of Netflix's release schedule, I don't know. But there's six episodes there that are, um, it's compelling documentary television. And I know we've covered many, many of those, but this is a good one. And it might actually do some real moral good to have this uh, spread around the world. So nice stuff there. If it's got if it's got that potential, then, you know, fucking A, as they say. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that brings us on to trivia. And I thought I'd do, well, some real life unsolved mysteries. It sort of writes itself, this one. <laughs> Starting off with probably one of the most famous, which is, of course, the Mary Celeste. Mm. Uh, as many, many people know, but just for those who don't, uh, in 1872, Captain Benjamin Briggs, his family, and a small trusted crew set sail on a voyage from New York to Genoa on a merchant ship called the Mary Celeste. One month later, the ship was found adrift off the coast of Portugal with not a soul on board. Uh, the riddle of the Mary Celeste, of course, has intrigued and mystified ever since. It was, crucially, uh, they had uh, everything set out for dinner uh, on the, in their dining room. So people are pretty sure that whatever caused the crew to abandon the ship happened very, very, very quickly. And it was also missing one of its lifeboats. And a very small crew at the time, it is entirely possible that the crew could have fitted on that lifeboat. The question is, why? It doesn't seem to be anything immediately wrong with the Mary Celeste. Of course, there are many, many theories. And I've got a couple of them here. Uh, one of the obvious theories, uh, mutiny. Did the ship's crew rebel against its captain? Uh, initial checks of the ship found strange marks that may have been caused by an axe, along with traces of what seemed to be blood. And bear in mind, we're back in the 1870s here, so forensic science is at its uh, most basic. <laughs> what seemed to be blood. Could, could be source, we don't know. Uh, <laughs> The Attorney General leading the inquiry fixated on the idea that members of the crew had gotten violently drunk on the ship's cargo of alcohol and then massacred everyone else on board before departing on the ship's sole lifeboat. Except it was later revealed that the bloodstains weren't bloodstains, the marks were due to natural wear and tear, and the alcohol carried on board was industrial grade, which wasn't fit for drinking. Far more likely to kill you outright or turn you blind. Also, I mean, homicidal sailors, if you capture the ship, uh, murder the Admiralty, You've got a ship with cargo. Why would you then abandon it? Precisely. And leave it adrift? It doesn't make a lot of sense, this one. I found a compelling theory, this one. So, as we previously mentioned, the Mary Celeste was carrying alcohol. Uh, large containers of industrial strength stuff, which is obviously highly flammable and highly explosive. The theory goes that whether due to turbulence or porous barrels, because they were notoriously badly made uh, containers at the time, noxious alcohol fumes may have escaped either causing a small explosion or making the crew think an explosion was imminent. Briggs, may have, the captain, may have then given the order to temporarily abandon the ship with everyone piling into the lifeboat to sail behind until the danger had passed. The rope attaching the boat to the ship may then have come undone, leaving them to bob uselessly as the empty Mary Celeste sailed away, abandoning them to the immensity of the sea. <clears throat> that seems like a reasonable theory, <clears throat> I would have thought. The fact that they were carrying a dangerous explosive cargo. If all of a sudden you get those few about to sit down to dinner, those fumes come up, right, shit, we've got to get off. 
before. I mean, you're back in the 1870s, you've got gas lamps, you've got open flames, um, you have fire for the cook, all that sort of stuff. Seems like a reasonable reason why you might abandon a, a valuable boat. I first um, came across the uh, phenomenon of Mary Celeste at a, um, it was like some small book at school that detailed um, certain maritime phenomena. That was the first time I ever encountered this story. And I just remember it, just reading about it, it just freaks the shit out of me. Yeah. It's, it, it's just a very, very disturbing, ominous tale. This, there's something to be said. If you find an abandoned ship and it's damaged or there's signs of an obvious fight or things are overturned and everything, then you can look at it and go, well, obviously some terrible violent event happened here. For everything to be essentially fine, for the boat, as if the, the crew of, of course, one of the theories is that they were abducted by aliens. That's still one of the theories going around today. That simply they were beamed up. Scotty. <laughs> yeah. um, Again, it's not falsifiable. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, a, a lack of evidence as per usual yeah. on that one. But yeah, I like the alcohol explosion theory. They were carrying dangerous cargo that could have uh, could have potentially destroyed the boat and the crew and they were simply running away from it. Seems uh, quite reasonable to me. Is that the um, is, is that the sort of empirical consensus among most people who have you know have the chops to investigate it? Is that the-, the trouble? Is it's all speculation because the evidence was so slim. As I say, you know, axe marks on a ship—that's not unusual. Yes, I should have said speculative consensus as opposed to empirical consensus. It seems to be the most likely. Yeah, yeah, at least in my mind. But again, it's one of those things we will never ever know. Uh, none of the sailors ever turned up again either. But if you're sailing away, if you got out into the lifeboat and it went adrift, I mean, they were sailing through some pretty rough waters at the time. Very, very possible their lifeboat overturned and that's the end of that. And they're down with uh, Davy Jones and his locker. Uh, this is really, really um, inspiring, uplifting stuff this week. Absolutely. As usual, we've turned into a true crime murder podcast <laughs> in the hope that we get more listeners. <laughs> <laughs> and there's the uh, Sodder children. Heard of this one? Quite a famous case, this. Sodder children. Yeah. Not ring the bell. So this is the uh, unsolved disappearance of five Sodder children in 1945, the family name, of course, being Sodder. In the middle of the night on Christmas 1945, a fire broke out at the Sodder home in Fayetteville, West Virginia, and within 45 minutes, the house had burned down. Parents, George and Jenny, escaped with half of their children, but five never made it out of the house. George tried to get back in to help them, but his ladder was missing from his woodshed. He tried to drive his trucks to the next house so he could climb to the upper windows, but neither of his trucks would start. Calls to the fire department received no response from the operator. By the new year, the coroner had issued five death certificates for the Sodder children. Here's the funny thing, though. No bodies. There were no bodies and no remains of any kind. Signs pointed to arson and their phone lines being cut. Uh, George, who was actually uh, Italian immigrant Giorgio Sodu, remembered a number of encounters in which he was threatened for his vocal criticism of Mussolini. Remember, this is 1945. Hmm. The Sodders never believed that their children died, as evidenced by a billboard looking for information that stood by the highway near their house for nearly 40 years. And no one is to this day sure what happened to them. (laughs) Yeah, scary stuff. So that seems like a serial killer slash kidnap. Really, the sheer fact that his ladder was missing, both of his trucks wouldn't start, and the phone lines were cut. It seems like a very obvious and deliberate... This wasn't an electrical fire, was it? This was uh, something far more malicious and deeper. But again, 1945, a lot going on in 1945, and the tech wasn't there. We will never know what happened to those poor children. Jesus Christ. I mean, the fact that, you know, I mean, most of these things, I mean, they're, they're tragic whilst 
giving you the serious spooks, mm. which is um, just a very unpleasant combination. <laughs> I remember watching an episode of Anthony Bourdain, Parts Unknown, which is still an amazing show if you haven't checked it out yet. Do get on that. Mm. Uh, he went to Seattle. And of course, Seattle's famous for having more serial killers than any other state. And more suicides as well, isn't it? Oh, I, I, I don't know. Is it? It might be. Sorry, I mentioned that. <laughs> no. I don't have the statistical corroboration to say yay or nay. <laughs> but he met up with this ex-police detective whose specialty was serial killers. I believe he's now a private investigator. Mm. And Bourdain said to him, just why are there so many you know, serial killers in Seattle? He said, well, it seems like a good place to run away to, basically. It's right up in the north of the country, northwest coast. Um, it's relatively quiet. You've got, you've got everything there you need. You've got like large amounts of... Um, woodland that you can go and hide away in you've also got the big city there if you want to you know continue your serial killer kind of thing but he said uh Bourdain said to him something like um you know just as a guess as someone that investigates serial killers how many would you say are active in the united states right now and he goes at least 50 at least mm. they're out there oh yeah <laughs> dun yeah. dun dun yeah no it's fucking terrifying I hope you're not listening to this podcast right before bed. <laughs> There's the uh, Flannan Island Lighthouse Keepers. Remember this one? Um, didn't they do a recent film adaptation of this called, uh, is it The Vanishing or something, Peter Mullen? Oh, right. Is that what it's about? I think that's the, I think, I think this case provides the basis. Yeah, I think it's called The Vanishing. So in December 1900, a ship landed at Island Moor, one of the seven islands of the Flannan Islands near Scotland to drop off a lighthouse keeper and relieve one of the three currently stationed there. Unfortunately, there were no lighthouse keepers there to greet them. All three, Thomas Marshall, James Ducat and Donald MacArthur, were gone, and things at the lighthouse were not right. An untouched dinner was set on the table and a nearby chair was overturned. The clocks were all stopped and the lamps were prepared for lighting but were unlit. Two of the three men's coats were missing and the doors and gate were tightly shut. Signs pointed to the men having gone for about a week by the time their disappearance was discovered. It was strictly against the rules for all three keepers to leave the lighthouse at the same time, and these were experienced men who wouldn't flout safety rules lightly. Investigators concluded they must have gone to secure a crane and been blown off a cliff or swept out to sea by an unexpected wave. In fact, the final logs of the lighthouse did note storms so severe that the three seasoned mariners were crying and praying. On the other hand, there was no record anywhere else in the area of bad weather during this time period, and no bodies were ever found. The island has since gained a reputation as a strange and supernatural place. Real surprise. Yeah. I've often wondered, I've never actually um, sort of read into how they did, you know when somebody is, uh, they declare death in absentia. For what what is the criteria for that to be an official log? As far as I know, it's simple lack of evidence and a, a, a long enough period of time that if they were you know missing, so to speak, that they would have likely been found by now uh, if they're not six feet under somewhere. Mm. As far as I know, that's that's the only criteria. It makes me wonder about the amount of people who've been declared dead and absent who have at some point resurfaced. Yeah, they've got to, There's there's got to be a few of them out there for sure. Yeah, for sure. Uh, how about a whole culture, a whole group of people? This is Great Zimbabwe. Uh, Zimbabwe is an anglicised version of an African word that means stone houses, and it comes from the mysterious city, Great Zimbabwe. So this is a civilization of around 18,000 people, advanced enough to build sophisticated stone walls up to three stories high, and of course gave its name to the nation of Zimbabwe. 
And they disappeared without a trace around about 400 years ago, and no one knows why. The abandoned city as it exists now is constructed entirely of granite slabs made using a technique called dry stone walling that requires no mortar to hold it together. A multitude of artefacts have been found at the site that point to the history of trade, metalworking in copper, bronze and iron, and extensive religious beliefs. But despite all that information, all anyone knows about the disappearance are a few theories, which include changing trade routes and depleting resources. Uh, since the identity of the residents and builders of Great Zimbabwe is unknown, finding out why they abandoned such a significant city nearly half a millennium ago may be an impossible task. They simply up sticks, all 18,000 of them at once. That's nuts, man. And nobody knows why. That's completely... It reminds me, you ever hear, you know, of the, uh, the Roanoke colony? Yeah, rings about 17th yeah. century out in the Americas. Just an entire. Oh, I think I came across that doing the research. Yeah, place. just yeah. an entire settler colony. They just yeah vanish. Mm. They just yeah just like, completely and utterly vanished. And again, no one knows why. If you watch uh, Storm of the Century, Stephen King seems to offer the theory that they were compelled to walk into the sea by a demonic immortal wizard. So maybe well, make that you know. As I said, falsifiability. All speculation is valid at this point, isn't it? <laughs> and let's finish off with Ambrose Bierce. He's probably more famous for what he did before he disappeared than his disappearance itself. He was an author famous for his cynically satirical The Devil's Dictionary, mm. which gives definitions such as politeness, the most acceptable hypocrisy, <laughs> and supernatural stories such as An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge and The Damned Thing. Alternatively, you might know him for writing the stories that inspired the stories that inspired season one of True Detective. Uh, when you combine his penchant for cynicism and the macabre with his history as a veteran of the Civil War, it may not entirely surprise you that you have what Time describes as a morbid fascination with horror and death. This led to him making the decision at age 71 to leave behind his life of boredom in the United States to witness Pancho Villa's Mexican Revolution in 1913. He sent his cousin a reassuring letter saying, Goodbye. If you hear of me being stood up against a Mexican stone wall and shot to rags, please know that I think that's a pretty good way to depart this life. It beats old age, disease, or falling down the cellar stairs. Uh, he was never heard from again once he set out for Mexico. Some believe he was killed in this siege of, and forgive my pronunciation, Ojinaya in 1914, while others believe it was all a ruse and he never went to Mexico at all, but just ran off and committed suicide elsewhere. So Ambrose Beers, we shall never know. Sucks, he was a talented guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Good story writing, for sure. But yeah, that's the scary thing with all this sort of stuff, isn't it? It's the, it's the speculative aspect. So sleep tightly tonight, everyone. And uh... <laughs> we haven't put the willies up here too forcefully. <laughs> I couldn't resist that, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that leads us to the end of our free podcast this week. We're off to go and record the premium one. Uh, I'm going to do a review of Greyhound and we're going to have a nice discussion. I believe you've got some examples and I've got a few as well of uh, books that we think should be made into films. Yes, indeed. So yeah, please do consider uh, checking our Patreon page and donating. Five bucks a month gets you four podcasts a month where we do much of the same, really, except we throw in some more games, some more trivia. So if you like our stuff, please do consider donating. Uh, anything to add, mate? No, again, just a reiteration. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Really appreciate it. I hope you're all still saying Staying safe, even though we're not completely Stay out inside. The, the serial killers will get you. <laughs> yeah, you don't you worry about coronavirus, mate. If you listen to this shit, you'll be bunkering right down <laughs> with a fucking, you know, World War Two helmet and being tooled up, I'll tell you now. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, guys, and hope to catch you over on the premium one. See you next week. Bye.